In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Hi everyone, welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We are Pastor Dan Sincorn and Adrian Terulo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. Pastor Dan is Shiloh's main leader, head pastor, and I, Adrian, am the youth leader. Each episode will consist of us talking about different topics and ideals in the Christian faith inspired from the previous Sunday sermon. We're going pulpit to podcast. We hope you find our conversation enriching, inspiring, and entertaining. In this week's episode, we're talking about John the Apostle. And John is the one who is credited with giving us these beautiful words that I read in the beginning. Um, He is, quote, the one who Jesus loved. He authored five books of the New Testament, which was 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Revelation, and the Gospel of John. And he was the brother of James, too. And so in the sermon on Sunday, you talked about James and John as as being the sons of thunder. And we've talked about that before in the podcast. I just love that. So I thought we'd start there. Um, and you said, if if James is the thunder, John is the lightning. Mm. I liked that a lot. I'm, I'm kind of proud of that one. That's pretty good. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, he, he does. He talks about light and love. And, and there's also this, like fire in John that we see mm-hmm. um, but th- it's it's clear beyond all else that John was special he was special to Jesus mm-hmm. he was the one who Jesus loved and and of course Jesus loved all of his apostles all of the disciples right and he loves us all um, it's kind of like when your parents say that you're their favorite <laughs> and then they go in the next room and tell your sibling that that, that they're the favorite it's because you can't really say i love one child more than another you simply mean uh it's shorthand for i love you because only you give me this particular joy mm-hmm. and i think that's yeah. the way jesus was referring to John, it's like like of all these guys, you're the only one that is this, mm-hmm. and I love especially that about you. It seems that John had this deeper, more intimate understanding of Jesus and of who God is. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, it's it's his book is not quote like part of the synoptics right Mm -hmm. that you said so the synoptics are the other three matthew mark luke and then john is just a little bit different yeah um, in that way so he goes a little bit deeper and you know i've had people ask me before i want to start reading the bible where do i start and i usually point them to john and i think you do too right well there's a couple of reasons that i do and one of them stems from a class i took years and years ago at a church on how to share your faith and it just said tell people to read john because if they read one chapter a day they'll be done in seven days well and it's just a soft start but i think it's more than that it's also a book that as you are alluding to invites people to see jesus for more than he appears to be you know, because a lot of people, 
who, unless they're just hostile to Christianity, a lot of non-believers will say, well, I'm not saying he didn't exist. I, I guess he existed because there seems to be enough evidence of that. You know, so they're, but they're equating him with somebody like Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or whatever. They're just they're they're thinking of him as a very influential spiritual leader, you know, and a human. Mm-hmm. And boy, when you open John and start reading that beautiful passage that you opened with, and it's like, okay, he's telling us more, and he's telling us, get ready. What you're about to hear is going to blow your mind. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you did this on purpose last week or not, but we talked about logos last week being the word and being Jesus. They're mm-hmm. kind of one and the same. And John tells us that literally in these first few words of his gospel, the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And how do we usually explain what he means when he says word? You, you've heard me say it enough. I know you probably got it memorized. Just the word with a capital W, right? Uh, yeah, right. I yes. mean, if, if you look at how it's written, it tells you that it doesn't mean the same thing as a lowercase w word mm-hmm. so the capital w word is the translator's way of saying this comes from a word that has a meaning like unto when we write christ or when we write god or when we write lord you capitalize it because you're describing the deity Mm-hmm. So the capital W word is a way for the English translator to say it's referring to the word not as a particular uh, piece of text, but as a expression of the, the divine being. And we have another word that works a whole lot better, and in this case, it translates just fine. So we Christians are allowed to use Greek if we want on this one. (laughs) We can just say logos. And unlike other words that we use in English that don't translate so smoothly from the Greek, because like the word love in English, there are about five different ways you can say love in Greek. Mm-hmm. which means we have to go, we, it's called parsing. We have to parse the meaning if we want to understand what was really being said when the word love is involved. But when we're talking about this particular word, it means what it says, and it says what it means, which is, as I like to say, the heart and mind of God. Logos mm-hmm. refers to that inner nature that we all have that is is the source of our character the source of our um just our nature you know and that could be the you know it's like um uh just thinking back to when our children were babies you know i i knew as soon as they were born i could already begin to see signs of their personality that, that there's something that comes with your soul that is your heart and mind that that is the essence of you and it could be 
translated later as a wicked sense of humor or as a spirit of adventure or it could be a, a rather timid nature or something like that and so the reason i'm tearing that apart for the moment is just because when we say logos we are being told that jesus is all of that but from god <laughs> that when you met jesus you were meeting not a oracle of god which is kind of like a speaker at a drive-in theater you know um you're not you're not meeting a a communications device you know when you meet jesus you are meeting god in the flesh and it comes packed he comes packed with god's nature with god's personality if jesus loves something it's because god loves that if jesus has a wicked sense of humor it's because god has a wicked sense of humor if jesus you know cries about this or laughs about that it's because god cries and laughs about that so that's what john is telling us that nobody else in the bible explains as well that you are in the presence of god when you are in the presence of jesus and those guys were in his presence in a way that we could only imagine. Mm -hmm. I wonder what it would have been like to have been them walking in the presence with God in the flesh. I wrote a short story when I was, I like to write stories and, and I like to write in general, but I wrote this story right after my daughter Bethany was born and I was a new dad and I was just over the moon crazy about being a dad and you know the whole thing and and I wrote this story that I don't want to tell the whole story but I wrote it basically to describe what I imagined it was like to encounter Jesus uh, in the manger and I wrote it at Christmas time because I, you know, until I had a baby of my own, I didn't appreciate things the way that I did after. It just works that way. And there was a way that I chose to describe Jesus's eyes as a newborn. And basically what I said was, is, you know, Jesus's newborn eyes never changed into adult eyes they always looked at you with that complete acceptance innocence purity you know mm. like see as we get old our eyes get shady and they get cloudy and they get jaded by time and experience and and uh you know they say the eyes are the window to the soul so I was trying to get at the fact that the Logos was being seen through the baby's eyes in a way that would never change throughout his 30-something years. And that's the only way I can think of to describe what it would be like to be in Jesus' presence, is that when you look into his eyes, you see the same same light and the same openness and the same you know whatever that you see when you're looking into a baby's eyes 
I think that should be our goal as Christians, right? To at least do our very best to portray that look that Jesus probably had in his eyes. When you see people, look at them with love. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't let the world clout your your vision or, or who you were designed to be. Um, when I when I'm at work in physical therapy, there have been some times recently where I've met a new patient, which happens pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. And there have been a few that I'll look at and I'll just immediately sense this joy in them. And I even said to one of these new people who were now pretty pretty closely connected we talk about a lot of really awesome things but the first time she came in man she was in so much pain after a surgery and yet she was so joyful there was just this like glimmer in her eyes and i just felt connected to her and i thought i bet she's a christian I bet she is. I just feel like she is. And I didn't bring it up our first time together because that's a lot of just getting started, getting acquainted. And then the second time she came in, she said something about going to church. And I asked her about it. And I said, you know, I don't think you'll take this the wrong way, but I just want you to know the first time I met you, I just sensed this joy in you. And I just thought, I bet she's a Christian. I bet she is. And I think she took that as a pretty good compliment. (laughs) And she was like, well, thank you so much. And I just didn't understand how, well, and I think this is the definition of joy because she was getting maybe two or three hours of sleep a night. She Mm. wasn't sleeping. She was in so much pain. She was just could not shake this pain from the surgery and yet here she was with this glimmer in her eye and this hope and this joy and i think that's the difference between joy and happiness Mm -hmm. right you have joy no matter what your circumstances are and i told her i said man i don't know how you are so happy right now and so joyful because if i was getting two or three hours of sleep i would be so cranky Mm -hmm. like there is no way um so I don't really know where I was going with that, but I well, think... Well, I was talking about how Jesus' eyes yeah. always reflected that sort of simplicity that you see in a child's eyes, in a baby's eyes. And, you know, Jesus said it himself. I mean, he, he told all of us that we should approach God as little children. And what I heard in your story is a story of someone who perhaps has reached a point in their life where their life is so totally in God's hands that they can't really bother with suffering or with with uh, unfulfilled expectations. I mean, most of us live lives of pursuit. We spend most of our lives trying to gain what we don't have. And I'm not trying to make social commentary. I mean, I, I just, I think it's natural. Mm-hmm. Um, first, you know, once you become even a little independent, by the time you're three, four years old, you're trying to get what you want. And you work out a variety of ways to get what you want. Sometimes you get it through persuasion or whatever, but sometimes you find a way to earn what you want and, and to achieve what you want. And so we spend all of our lives trying to, to sustain ourselves. And then that turns into, a, a, for most of us, a mild form of greed. We, 
we just figure we're better off if we have more than we need and I suppose that's not the worst thing in the world because you know God even had Joseph put up seven years worth of spare because a famine was coming so the idea of being prudent isn't such a bad thing either but somehow as we get older we start to believe that we did all that number one and we deserve all that like we're entitled to it and that really separates us from God because we become not necessarily proud but we become sort of desensitized to how quickly it can all change you know that's what Jesus meant when he said that you know it's like the farmer who puts up everything in his barn and says now I'm set and that night he dies Mm. you know and and it's like you know uh one of the things that i heard years ago and i don't even remember where now but someone i really admire in the preaching world said something to the effect of if you really think about what the greatest saints of church history were like they were all focused on heaven and that didn't make them morbid it wasn't like they were focused on death they were just aware that the only thing that you have when you die is the the soul that you transmit into heaven i didn't say that very well but the idea is it doesn't really matter what you do in life dead is dead mm-hmm. you know and and i kind of enjoy walking through cemeteries and and uh i have enjoyed reading many an epitaph and and you know it doesn't matter how big the stone is it doesn't matter how carefully someone has gone out of their way to carve this wonderful description of a person they're as dead as the one who has a small stone that has a name and a date to date dash dead is dead and you know there's an old joke i guess they used to say it about howard hughes when i was a kid because he was the richest man in the world but now you might say warren buffett or or uh uh, uh elon musk elon musk yeah i was yeah. gonna say the tesla guy because i just went blank for some reason yeah you know, it's like well well uh how much money are you supposed to leave behind when he dies and the answer is all of it <laughs> you know yeah because it doesn't matter how much it is it's all staying here and and so i think what you know without being like i said without being morbid i think that the most devoted christians the ones that are most devoted to christ are the ones that approach him like a child like really it's it's like all these things are flooding into my head what i love peter said something to jesus one time that i have often said in my prayers and it's basically uh jesus asked him he said well you know several disciples had had heard him say something they really couldn't handle and they left him and jesus turned and looked at the apostles and he said well i suppose you guys are going to leave me too and peter says no lord where else would we go for the words of eternal life Mm. you know like are you kidding me And, and jesus knew i'm sure but it was just sort of a you know he was a little he took a deep breath i guess and said well i guess you guys are going to leave now too and you know and and it was just refreshing to him to hear no 
no, we get you as much as we can, and we're not giving up on you, you know? And, and I think that's the childlike approach that he's advocating for all of us, is that, that uh, you know, he looks at us with a purity that none of us has, and so we're compelled by his compassion and, and the, the openness that it comes through his eyes. But at the same time, he invites us to put our trust in him in the same way that a baby would. You know, I, in my collection of grandbaby pictures, I have a picture of a, my granddaughter when she was probably about a year old and she was spending the night with us for the first time. And, and uh, she started to wake up and I picked her up out of her little crib. It was one of those kind that was on the floor that we used to call playpen when I was young. But but I picked her up out of it and I laid back down in bed and put her on my chest and she just started sucking her thumb. And Laura leaned over and took a picture and there I was, you know, laying on the bed with my granddaughter on my chest. And it was just that absolute faith in me that I was there and everything was okay. Grandpa's got you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Jesus wants us to do. You know, he wants us to approach the the Lord with that same, don't worry, Grandpa's got you. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time when I was on a retreat that was, uh, well, a Catholic version of the walk to Emmaus, I remember listening to, I had a very profound experience and it was very worthwhile, but I remember listening to one of the talks and then saying to the guys at my table, sometimes it's easier for me to imagine God as a grandfather. Because sometimes when I picture him as a father, I get stumbly, you know, I I trip over some things. And so I like thinking of him as like Grandpa Walton, you know, from from the Will Gear from the Waltons show back in the 70s, because that was a big deal to me. And he was the perfect grandpa as far as I was concerned, you know. And it was like, you know, God could be that. But I, I think I'm, I, I think I'm on this theme here because again, what, what is it that we started with? We're talking about the logos, so the heart and mind of God, and basically what we're, I wouldn't say dancing around, but passing through, are different variations on that theme that our lord is real and and this is this is his realness his 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 authenticity is not to be understated as he's a remarkable person no he's god and to really put that into your mind and realize that you when you encounter jesus you are encountering God. And God, you know, in effect wants to hold you on his chest and let you be at peace and know that he is God. Be still and know that I am God. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just like like Jesus is the embodiment of that. And for people to realize that when they encountered Jesus in those days, they weren't just encountering an expression of God, they were encountering God. And they were, you know, Jesus said, if you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. 
And he's saying basically that, that, you know, and that's where the apostles, I think, have all of us at a disadvantage. If there's a reason why there were only 12 apostles, but there have been millions and billions of disciples, because those 12 were with him 24-7. And that means that they heard him sleep because they were nearby you know did jesus snore i don't know but he breathed deeply like everybody does when he sleeps i suppose and uh you know did did he get bo after a long day in the sun probably and i could use more you know guttural references because he was fully human but this is god Mm -hmm. this is god and they knew god like no other human being has ever known God, which makes Judas's crime all the worse, you know, because he's not just betraying a man, he's betraying a man who is God. Anyway. Yeah. I think if we're talking about approaching our faith with a childlike wonderment um something else that it makes me think of is kids ask a lot of questions (laughs) almost incessantly so sometimes and i think as christians it's important that we ask questions and we critically think through our faith Mm -hmm. um anthony and i watched a documentary last night called Mm -hmm. religious and they asked a lot of questions and that documentary was a lot of things i don't know if i would necessarily recommend it but the guy in charge of it um his mom was catholic his dad was jewish he was atheist and uh bill Maher is his name and but he asked many questions almost like in a hostile way which is not how we should approach it and yet, he got me thinking, so maybe some good came out of it. Um, but he interviewed all of these people who claimed to be very um, religious and these, these leaders in their faith, and not just Christianity, but um, Judaism, and uh, he talked with some Mormons, and just some, even like the um, uh, Scientologists, like mm. it was all over the place. Did he um, talk to Muslims? He did. Okay. Yeah, and he asked questions like, "Why do you pray to this rock? Like, why do you have to turn and face this?" And I don't know. It was just, it was just interesting. He did ask some some questions, and it just got me thinking. Um, and then you told me today, just before we started the podcast, that there are people who have written down questions and they want to come tonight and ask you about them. And I think that's awesome. Like that is what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, turn to someone that you trust, turn to Pastor Dan, turn to whoever and just ask these questions because it's so important that we grow as Christians. It's so important that, um, we continue to critically think through our faith Mm -hmm. so that when we do share our faith with people, which is what we're called to do, we can, and we can feel more secure in our faith. Um, Yeah. And I I really appreciate the endorsement, but I want to say very publicly and very clearly, I can't promise that I'll always have an answer, but I'll do the critical thinking with you and find an answer and sometimes the answer will be i don't know mm-hmm. but i still trust him with my eternal soul and those of my beloved and 
that much I'm certain of. So I just want that to be really clear because if they're, you know, because there's always people that are, you know, most people who call themselves atheists, and I'm really going to go out on a limb here, but it seems like I say that every week at some point, but, but most people who call themselves atheists are usually really angry about something. They're really disappointed with religion. And they go so far as to say that that disappointment must reflect a human problem that people try to credit God with, or vice versa. They're talking about a human problem but blaming God for it. But in the end, they will almost invariably tell you about things they hear that Christians believe, or Muslims, or Jews, or anyone else, they, they'll say, I hear about these things you believe, and I see, and, uh, you know, in other ways, witness evidence that the world's not better because you're here professing these things. Your life doesn't seem better to me. Like, most atheists are people who have never really encountered a really sold out train transformed christian mm -hmm. or they haven't encountered god and they're not willing to encounter god like like what i would say to any atheist and i know again that this is very unlikely because the most important thing that anyone can do in their relationship with god is have an open mind and be willing to hear and accept what you're hearing and so so i guess what i'm saying is is if i was talking to bill maher and i was asking him why he's an atheist i would probably just say well i just want to ask you one thing would you be willing to take i don't know a week 24 hours but a week would be better and to say every day with an open mind God, I don't believe in you, but if you're real, help me to see that. Help me to understand that, and then I will believe in you. I mean, if you could just say that, you would be amazed at what would happen, you know. And I think they would go into it skeptically and think, you know, like 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 all people do. I'm a skeptic about many things, and 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 you go into it even mildly hostile to the idea. But if you believe that you might encounter God, if you can just give yourself that, then you might be amazed by the end of the week with what you experience and it probably won't be anything like a lightning bolt or anything like that you'll just you'll just see and hear things because you open your mind to that possibility and what i find with most most people who call themselves atheists is that most of them aren't really atheists as much as they're agnostics and agnostics are people who say well, I believe there's something cosmic and supernatural going on, and there's a being that might be behind all of that. But that's as far as I'm willing to go. And it's easier for me to comprehend an agnostic than it is an atheist. 
Um, atheism is kind of weird because most of the people that I have encountered over the years, either directly or indirectly, who proclaim themselves atheists, um, are people who, if they're honest, they're actually practicing a, practicing a religion of atheism. They're mm -hmm. trying to convince you not to believe in God, which is pretty much what people who believe in God are trying to do. Like Christians like to get other people to believe in God and to believe in God's Son <clears throat> and salvation through that Son, and they feel compelled to get other people to, to hear that message and accept that message. And in that way, I think a lot of atheists are proselytes the same way. There are people who are going out there trying to convince you. Why would an atheist organization exist? But they do, and they buy billboards in places like New York City, or they buy banners on the side of a bus that say, there is no God. Why are they so determined to convince you that there's no God? It's their religion. Hmm. <laughs> it's, it's their religion of anti-God. And, and it's like, what I would like, for an honest atheist to do is stay out of my business <laughs> and say you can believe whatever you want i just don't yeah. and they would have a right to ask me to do the same you know see that's the problem because the atheists will say that the reason they go out of their way to convince people there is no god is because there's all these people out there doing things that they think make the world worse in the name of God, you know, and I would argue that they have encountered so many counterfeit versions of the true God and counterfeit versions of true Christianity that they don't have any reason to believe that it does any real good. And I honestly don't know in my grand scheme of things, I don't know which is worse, being an atheist or being a Christian who is convinced that your counterfeit version of Christianity is authentic and how dare you, Pastor Dan, question me. Mm -hmm. You know, because I honestly think that the atheist is more honest about what they believe or don't believe than a Christian who has believed something that has been built on their family traditions, on their church traditions, on their community traditions, something that's been built on hearsay and not scripture and not real Holy Spirit filled encounters with Christ. And they are actually kind of frightened of the prospect because they can't risk having that level of discomfort introduced into their lives. Yeah, that was, it was becoming increasingly clear to me when we were watching this documentary last night that uh, Bill chose these Christian leaders, uh, quote, you know, he, he chose kind of easier targets. And so he would ask this question and they would just immediately crumble or they would say something that I knew was not true. Mm -hmm. Like there was one person, he was an African-American man. I don't remember his name, but he was leading some church somewhere. I don't know. And he was very wealthy and he, uh, would tell people that they needed to buy his DVDs and they needed to do all these things. And this guy sits down in this interview and he's got this really swanky suit on and these nice shoes and gold jewelry and Bill is like so 
doesn't Jesus teach against being rich? Like, he just kind of asks it point blank. And the guy was like, oh, no, no, not at all. Like, Jesus loves the rich. And he's Bill was like, no, actually, it's very clear in the Gospels that Jesus does you know, it's easier for a man to enter heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. He quoted that. And I'm like, okay, Bill knows his gospel. Okay. He knows some stuff. And this guy just blatantly and just irrespectively, I guess, just was like, no, that's not true. That's not true. And whether or not he knew it to be true, he, he was just like stubbornly obstinate Mm -hmm. and didn't, he wasn't open. And I could see that through all of these people that this guy interviewed. I mean, he talked with a Christian leader who completely denied the existence of the Holocaust. I'm like, dude, you're Jewish. Like, how can you? It, it just didn't make sense. And mm-hmm. and so I think it's so important that we can stand firm in our faith. Know what the Bible says. Know God's heart and mind, right? So that we can yeah. stand by it. It's so important. Yeah, I... You know, unfortunately, if you fill a room full of hard-headed, immovable people whose minds are made up, um, rather than have them speak to one another, why don't you just have them put on football helmets and start pounding each other? Right. You know, because, because that's all that's going to happen. And I told you before we decided to record, you know, I said, look, the truth is, is if Bill Maher or anybody else invited me on their show, I'd say, no, thank you. Right. Um, I, I, there was another thing I was thinking when we were talking about that. So you were asking me, you know, I, you said when you were watching this, you know, I wonder what Pastor Dan would say, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I said, well, here's the honest answer is I would not be there. I would try really hard to avoid that situation altogether. And the one thing I was thinking that I didn't tell you earlier is is that the Lord has told me on more than one occasion, and I promise you I don't have any profound experiences and I don't hear Charlton Heston speaking from the clouds or whatever. I All I know is, is sometimes I just know that I know I've heard the voice of God. Mm-hmm. And it's more internal than external. I just get this firm sense that God just spoke to me and and it doesn't happen that often so there was a there's been a couple of different times in my adult life when I've sort of said to the Lord you know I'm a little embarrassed and ashamed of myself because I really don't take a stand any unless you know I'm just backed into a corner I try to avoid confrontation and I feel shamed of that now there was a part of my life where that was an expression of a lack of self-confidence some mental and emotional uh, illness you know and when I use those terms I don't mean anything like you know institutionalizing you know but just simply to say that, that we all come into life wounded by things and and or come through life wounded by things and i was wounded in a lot of ways where i was afraid to speak my mind and stand up for myself and i'm certainly not afraid anymore i will say whatever i feel like i need to say and i have more confidence at this stage of my life to do that than i've ever had i just wish it could have come 20 years earlier but whatever and one of those times that I was afraid that I wasn't speaking up and that I was taking the cheap way out by be, by being a, a, a mediator, I privately said to the Lord, you know, 
I'm afraid they might be right about me when they say I'm wishy-washy. And I remember distinctly feeling like the Lord said to me, when you need to take a stand, I know you will. And you might remember a year or so ago when I got up and preached what some people say is the most powerful sermon I've ever preached. And it wouldn't be done in my own strength because it was really my here I stand sort of message. We were talking about disaffiliating from the United Methodist Church and I would always avoid trying to be a lightning rod. I, you know, and, and in my mind that was more about humility. It's like it's like if I make myself a lightning rod, then I'm doing what a lot of these people do, which is coming off like I'm self-important. Like my opinion is so important, you should listen to it. You know, like like there's there's a built-in humility that I have that came from all of that self-deprecation and all of those those years of being having no self-confidence and everything you know it's like when when you're 25 and your world you consider yourself a world-class loser by the time you get my age you probably got over that if you worked hard like i did but you still have this innate desire to not draw attention to yourself because it'll either bring about criticism that you don't want to deal with or it will be um, uh, an act of, of pride that you would be ashamed of, you know. And since Christians and generally any Christian or Jew, you know, recognizes pride as the essence of sin, say, okay, I can turn something that was a bad part of my life when I was young into a good thing because now I don't have to work as hard at being humble. <laughs> <laughs> Life has humbled the heck out of me, and people in my life have humbled the heck out of me. So now that I understand that I can feel good about myself in appropriate ways, I can act humble because it's second natured. <laughs> Just as long as I'm not pretending, you know, as long as I'm not being disingenuous in my humility. And bringing that full circle, I guess what I'm saying is, is that I felt this assurance from God that when I needed to be courageous, and to stand firm and say whatever the consequences this is where i stand and i did have a moment when i did that publicly and i think there will be some more um but what that comes back to for me is is that that when we when we represent ourselves as christians people look at us and they want to see something authentic because secretly they want to believe that what you say is true. Mm -hmm. And we have so many so-called Christians who go to church every week all over the world who don't get it. And the world can sniff them out so fast. You can fool the other people in the pews into thinking you're a good Christian, but you can't fool the people outside the building. Ah. They'll sniff you out in a heartbeat. See, the Bill Mars are out there with their sensors turned up full blast, and they are looking for a hypocrite. They want their doubts validated. And the thing that undoes even someone like 
Bill Maher, or another one I know of that I, I, is an entertainer that I really like named Stephen Fry. He's a British actor, but he's also a well-known atheist, and he has a very intellectual, sort of cerebral way of arguing against matters of faith. But at the end of the day, you know, it's only because he's never witnessed anything convincing. Hmm. And you can't debate him into witnessing that. It's going to happen when some moment in his life that might be very private puts him in a situation where he needs God to be who God really is. And he, and he sees, maybe he's not thinking it directly, but somewhere in his mind there's this thing going off that says, right now you really want that Christian God to be what they say he is. You know, right now you really wish that God was real and that he was everything those people say he is. And in that moment, if they can encounter God, it's a little like my atheist giving God a week. You know, in their private moment, they may just encounter a God that's real. Um, I, I just don't know how to explain it any differently than that. The people... People don't experience the Logos. They don't experience the heart and mind of God unless they're in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' model for duplicating himself after the resurrection was to fill all of us with the Holy Spirit and say, okay, when you met God before Jesus came, Jesus is saying this, right? Before I came, the only way you could meet God was in the temple and the tabernacle. And only a couple of people dared to actually go into the immediate presence of God. The rest of us had to be close to God. And there was an awe and fear and reverence in all of that that was comforting and terrifying all at the same time. And then God brings us Jesus and says, now I'm coming to earth to be one of you. And he's born in the most humble circumstances. He lives a life of humility. We've already talked about how when you met Jesus, you were meeting God and not just a representative of God, but the very person of God, the very heart and mind of God, meaning that as intimately as two human beings can possibly know one another, you could know God and it's funny because it's described as a marriage later in scripture. And so if you knew Jesus like the apostles did and some of the other close people, you were experiencing a intimate relationship with the heavenly God of heavenly father, God, right? And you were experiencing that in Jesus. You were looking into the eyes of God. You were listening to the voice of God. You were you were tickled by the same things that tickled him and you were frustrated by the same things that frustrated him because that's the intimacy that existed between his apostles and Jesus. And then after his resurrection, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit so that basically we can experience God in us. <laughs> he replaces our logos with his logos. Or maybe a better way to put it is, is that he hybridizes our logos into his logos. He, he melds them together in a super logos so that our heart and mind is now infused with 
God's heart and mind. And the extent to which we are willing to submit to that, like a child, the, the, the extent to which we're willing to live into the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, that's the efficacy of our witness. So what most, uh, most people who are hostile to Christianity don't understand is they just haven't really met God yet. They're still trying to find the Jesus that we all talk about. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians are talking about him, but he doesn't live in them. I don't think that people realize that being a Christian is more than getting insurance that you will go to heaven when you die. And certainly that's given and offered to you. So if in some way, even if it's through a religious exercise, you say, I do believe in Jesus Christ and I do believe that I'm going to heaven because of him, there's a sense, I guess, that you're covered. But if you're no longer dead in your sins, but you're not alive in Christ, then what are you? You're like a you're like a zombie. I don't know. You, you you know, and so many people go to church and go through the motions of Christianity, but they haven't opened their hearts to Christ's presence any more than the atheist. So my challenge, I would say, is is that not only should the atheist spend a week saying, "If you're real, show me." But every Christian who goes to church should spend a week saying, Today, Lord, I want you to show me the Holy Spirit alive in me. Today, I want you to prove to me that a week of regular doses of the Holy Spirit will change me. Because what I think is existing, I've heard it described in, a, in I have two, two metaphors. One metaphor is one that was given to me in a course I took called Alpha where the teacher says that we all have this pilot light in us when we're born uh, again. When we become a Christian, uh, the Lord puts this little pilot light in there. Now, this works if you have a gas stove or a gas water heater or anything else that's got a little pilot light. And you know that in order to experience the full benefit of that power that's there, that gas, you have to turn the knob and then that pilot light causes the gas to ignite in a burner that generates hot water or hot food or whatever. And so that's a good illustration because if the Holy Spirit is in your average Christian, it's just the pilot light. And they never, uh, in the industry, they say, call for the gas or the heat like you know your furnace is gas powered and when your thermostat gets to a certain point it calls for the heat and then it comes and the pilot light ignites burners that generate heat that warm your house and and nobody ever does that there's christians all over the world who are like i don't know why i'm so cold towards god or the world or i'm i don't know why i'm so afraid of all these things in the world you know because it just i i thought god would be with me and the answer is because you never called for the spirit that warms your soul. You, you're, you're letting your house be cold all the time because you don't call for the heat. It's right there. The fuel is waiting to be released and the pilot light is right there. Or maybe another analogy is, is that you have this huge reservoir of God's spirit that you have access to, but you never open the floodgate.
And so all your life, you're living downstream from this reservoir, experiencing a trickle of the Holy Spirit, when in fact, God wants you to open the gates and let it flood your life and flow. And if people meet spirit-filled people whose pilot lights have ignited the flame, whose floodgates are open, there's a really good possibility that they're going to find the irresistible Jesus that people met face to face. And it won't be you they encounter, but Christ in you. Absolutely. We had a youth event this past weekend called Dare to Share, and it was all about sharing your faith. And it was a whole day of hearing speakers and talking about how to share your faith, and they gave us tools and things. And I think one of the most, well, if not the most powerful way that we can share our faith is just by saying, I was one way, and now I'm another way. And that transformation happened through Jesus. And I think I've heard you inadvertently like saying that in the whole message today mm-hmm. is like well you said you know when you were 25 you thought you were a first class loser mm-hmm. and that's just what the world told you that you were and over the past almost 40 years if my math is correct through a deeper relationship with jesus you know that not to be true anymore yeah and look at all of the lives that you've impacted from that and you continue to impact and and help through that like me you know um, and we saw that transformation too in John, in John the Apostle. You know, he goes from this son of thunder who, you know, along with his brother James, he's he's mad at these Samaritans and he's like, Jesus, I want, we need to call fire down on these people and we need to burn them up. Um, and, and there's a word that describes these sons of thunder boanerges i think i'm saying that right mm-hmm. um but it it actually translates in aramaic to like rage so he has like this rage in him where he's like wanting basically to smite people down with thunder and then we get this john the apostle who is full of love and grace and knows Jesus intimately. Mm-hmm. And he says the word love over 80 times through his five books in the gospel. Or, well, in the gospel and, you know, mm-hmm. in, in all the mm-hmm. books that he's written in the New Testament. And that's transformation. So you can see John was one way. He was this rage-filled man who um, likely was actually like pretty rich. Um, I was reading about that earlier. Anyway, but he's he's this like very rage-filled, angry person, and he transforms to the exact opposite: mm-hmm. love and kindness through Jesus's eyes, like through his childlike faith, and through walking with God in the flesh. And so if we can say that as spirit-filled believers who have lit our pilot light, you know, like, okay, I was one way, and through the warmth of the Holy Spirit and through knowing Jesus Christ, I am this way. Mm-hmm. No atheist can refute that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, see, that's that's a really good point, Adrian, because, because so many times... Um, so many times Christians try to convert people or convince people... And their whole frame of mind is wrong. Um, Christians have been saying, they've been calling it witnessing or testimony for generations, but they forget forget to testify. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Instead, they try to convince. Um, you know, you if you're focused on yourself in a prideful way when you're trying to share your faith, it's you're trying to win a victory. You're trying to win mm-hmm. the victory. Like, like if I can convince Bill Maher, who is a widely known, very famous public figure, that he's wrong, I'm going to have a great victory. So the guy with the fancy suit and, you know, and, and I, it's funny because I've known, I don't know that guy, but I've known that guy. Um, and I remember when I would run into him on a regular basis at a certain gathering we all went to, he always had a Jaguar. He was always driving a Jaguar. And he got a new one every couple of years, you know. And, and the whole philosophy behind that was is that if you don't look like God is blessing you, then people will think that, God's not blessing you and that means you don't have authority to to you know sell DVDs or whatever yeah but the the funny thing is is that he probably went in there thinking that he was gonna you know just blow Bill Maher's mind away you know like right. hey I have all these vict-. you know well if it turns out that a lot of the people who follow you are just too dumb to know better <laughs> or so steeped in a culture rather than a faith you know that they assume that you're doing what you should be doing and that they're you know and and again if if you're honest in in any culture because this is not a racist statement whatsoever i'm been i i god loves me i guess because he's given me so many opportunities to see things and and go places and do things and i can tell you that that there's good people in every church i've ever set foot in and they're lovely people but most of them are practicing a religion that's familiar to them. And familiar is a word that variate is a variation on the word family. And it means that we're doing what we've always done. And it's long been forgotten why we do it. <laughs> and what the real meaning of it is. But it sure is fun and it sure feels good when everybody there is in agreement about what we're doing and how we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Even if nobody remembers why. And that's every church. That's right here in this church. It's in every church I've encountered in my life. There are always a core group of people who keep coming back for the same thing they keep coming back for. And sometimes you get rid of them or change the thing enough that they don't want to come back anymore. And I'm not trying to get rid of them, but I'm just saying that's what happens, right? But most of the time, they'll just wait you out because they think that they are the the immovable object that will never be changed and that things will reset to them eventually, you know. Or the fear of something even more uncomfortable is worse than the fear of something that's mildly uncomfortable, but I digress. There was something I wanted to say, though. You, you know, you're talking about John. I, in this whole series that I've done on the apostolic tradition, which has taken roughly three months, you know, and there's been breaks in it, and you know, it's not been like every single Sunday. And but, but I, uh, the one thing I never really mentioned is, is that all of these twelve apostles, and probably most of the other companions, because this Sunday I'm going to start talking about women of the Bible. These are all probably high schoolers and very young adults. So these were basically high school and college-aged people. 
that Jesus was handing the keys to the kingdom over to. And he's their leader and he's 30. And you're at a point in your life now where 30 doesn't seem like, you know, it was ever possible. And now that you're almost there, right? Yeah. I mean, and you're going, I never expected to be 30 and now here I am. Well, you're saying that and I'm thinking, well, that age is, all these ages are very similar to what I'm currently doing in youth ministry. Exactly. Like, this is wild. Yeah. Yeah. You, you are, in fact, around the same age Jesus was when he was leading a bunch of young adults and children well, not, excuse me, the young adults and teenagers, yeah. which is what you do for us here at Shiloh and for the Lord. And it's like, so imagine that, you know, imagine that that they are doing all those things you read about. And, and uh, honestly, I'm always amazed at how overlooked that fact is, mm-hmm. that these were young people. They were changing the world because young people have a tendency to do that. You know, I just watched Jesus Revolution finally. You recommended it to me a year ago. I finally got around you to watching finally it. finally watched it. Good. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, you know, I've told you before, I, I used to listen to Chuck Smith on the radio all the time. And then Greg Laurie. And, you know, I listened to the second generation of contemporary Christian music that that was when I became a teenager because all all that happened about 10 years before I was old enough to be one of those people so um, but but what I'm saying is young people are always the driving force behind movements and that's exactly why we have so much evil on college campuses right now because you know right now we have things happening on college campuses that anyone else in you know our country is opposed to like like you got to be out of your mind and i'm trying not to make our episode about that but basically these are the people whose minds are open to new ideas and they're kind of motivated to big to make their own way and be their own person after you know they've spent their long 18 years of life suffering through the tutelage and oppression of their parents and now they're going to be their own person and there's some neck bearded old freak with books from floor to ceiling in his office who's tenured and probably a little bit kooky who's more than willing to teach them to think in ways that are destructive to their very nature and then employ them to exercise social change or whatever and what i find is is young people who aren't influenced but who are informed encouraged and embraced in love they can change the world for the it's like jesus's model for training up a group of young people to change the world is the one that i want to follow mm-hmm. but your average despot who's in some high lofty position in a college somewhere with ivy all over the walls is somebody who is using their influence over these young people to do something that I would say is for the most part diabolical. I'm not ashamed to say that. Jesus's model for energizing and mobilizing young people is a very good one. And it works because we're still talking about him. Right. You know, but that's the most important thing to take away from the whole apostolic tradition series is to understand that they were mentored by the master. 
with a capital M. And they were intimately connected to the logos or the capital W word. And they were filled with that logos and it melded with their own heart and minds so that they became literal expressions of Christ in his absence. That's pretty awesome. I mean, that is hard to resist by people whose hearts and minds are hungry for something. It's easy to resist when resisting is your religion. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's that's always going to be out there. That this is they're always you know the people who crucified Jesus, they their religion was so modeled around their self-interest that they could not embrace what Jesus was saying or who he was without threatening their comfort. Seems like we're talking about church again. Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so important in our world today when we're faced with people like all these people that we're talking about in this episode, we will be faced with these people who question. They say, oh, you're Christian. Well, I have questions. We're going to face that. And it's important that we have the spirit in our hearts and the knowledge behind that so that we can stand firm in our faith Mm -hmm. and so that we don't appear to flounder like all these people that I watched last night. Um, Well, and if you try to defend the faith, I do believe certain people are called to that. It's something called apologetics. But what I want to say to you and young people like you is, if you are called to account, share your faith, not your knowledge. Mm. Don't be tempted to share things that you can't explain without making yourself feel foolish and giving the enemy what he's after. Simply say what you know for sure. My life was this way. I met Jesus. Now my life is this way. I don't know all the answers to your questions, but I know this for sure. My life was this way. Then I met Jesus, and now it's this way. True, I can't answer all of your questions, but what I can tell you for certain is my life was this way. Then I met Jesus, and now my life is this way. At the very least, you'll frustrating you'll frustrate them into leaving you alone. But you probably are going to start annoying them on a deeper level because they haven't shaken your faith, which is basically what they're setting out to do. Because the Bill Myers and people like that, they're trying to shake your faith. And they're motivated by their own kind of religious conviction, which is to break you of yours. And when you realize, when they realize they cannot break you of your religious conviction any more than they can be broken, they just give up. And because they realize that they can't argue with your witness, your faith, your whatever. You know, when you meet people who say they've seen Bigfoot, you can't tell them that they didn't see what they saw. You can't, and I don't want to put Jesus on the same level with that, but I'm just saying it's human nature. This is basic sociology. If a person has an experience that they are convinced is real, 
you could tell them why you're not convinced that what they experienced was real, but you can't convince them that what they experienced wasn't real. Because they have a memory of it. They have a certainty about it that you can't have because you weren't with them. You know, and I've heard so many people tell stories about things that the rest of the world wants to mock them, make them make fun of them. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people tell Bigfoot stories. And all I can say is, is there's an awful lot of people out there who have had experiences that they're very vivid to them and very uh, believable in the way that they present themselves. So all that says to me is, is a lot of people are really convinced that what they saw was real. And so what point would I be making and what purpose would I serve if I said, well, I'm not satisfied that that's real just because you are and I want you to change your mind and stop believing what you believe. You know, that's uh, in, in Douglas Adams' book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's this hysterical place. It's a funny book. And, and there's this hysterical place where uh, a bunch of philosophers um, basically explain to God why God doesn't exist and God goes, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And then God ceases to exist. Oh. <laughs> and that's the point. Uh, Douglas Adams was brilliant. He, he was kind of a theologian. But it, if God does, if, if your God's not real, then you may be convinced that God is not real and then he disappears. You, you can't really convince God that he doesn't exist. But you can convince somebody who isn't sure what they believe and leave them with no God. And that's really what people like that are out there doing. They're trying to convince you that you should believe as they believe. And what they believe is that they don't believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was up until the wee hours of the morning on Saturday, well, Sunday, I guess, with one of my youth group kids, and he was really inspired by the the talks that we had on Saturday, and he was like, he was like, Miss Adrian, I have this friend, and I have really have been trying to talk with him. He's atheist, and I'm a Christian, of course, and I'm trying to, like, figure out how to do this. Like, how do I go about it? And he's asking all these awesome questions, and he's really got this fire inside of him, and I just felt so inspired by his um like passion like mm -hmm. he really wants to help his friend and that's how you do it i mean to answer all those questions it's like that's how you do it you just say hey this is how this is my story this is how my life has been changed um and and then just living that out not being hypocritical mm -hmm. and uh just knowing too how not to do it like one of the speakers told the story of someone who uh, was just on fire for his faith and he just wanted to, to, you know, get everyone to be Christian. And so he goes out to this dark alley. This was not Shiloh related. This was like, I don't even know these people, but he's just telling this story. And his friend goes up to someone in a dark alley and says, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? And this person looks at them and just whacks them across the face with her purse. And this guy comes running 
going back to his friend and he's like he's like man i just got persecuted for my faith literally persecuted (laughs) and the dude is like no you did not get persecuted for your faith you got persecuted because that was completely the wrong way to go about it like you came on way too strong and that was not good um but i just thought that was a really humorous way that's good i like that on so many levels that's great right down to the joke yeah um yeah that that'd be another topic someday and and you know we we probably won't get to it on sundays anytime for the the remainder of the year but you know there is a time to talk about persecution and what that is and isn't and and a lot of people set themselves up for abuse because they're just dumb Mm. you know Mm-hmm. And I don't think God calls us to be dumb. There's a difference between being childlike and being stupid. Right. Right? Yeah. And and having childlike faith that might cost you your life or physical harm or imprisonment or whatever, that's that's the Christian way. But being slapped upside the head with a purse because you were rude and inconsiderate and stupid yeah you no, know right i'd have hit you upside the head with my purse i mean come on right yeah that's insane yeah um i don't know but i guess the main takeaway of our podcast today is is learn through john and be closer to jesus just welcome him into your heart and allow him to transform you through the spirit um and i think another part of that too is like ask questions ask hard questions yeah. ask yourself why do I go to church every week? Do I come to consume or do I come to know God better? Mm-hmm. Or why do I not go to church every week? What do what how do I spend my time and what does that say about my priorities? Like where are you in your faith and and ask questions. It's good. And learn learn through John. He's a great example. If you know a young person out there that's looking for a community to connect with, I'm telling you, this lady, Adrian, and her friends in our youth ministry are absolutely awesome. You should come hang out with them. Well, thank you. I think we're pretty awesome, too. <laughs> we have a fun time together. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Is that a wrap? That's a wrap. God bless you, everybody.